So this week I've been thinking about when, when was the first time I can think back to when I had like a crisis in my life? As an adult, you know, we face, you know, even small crises on a fairly regular basis. So, but when you were like, just go back and think when you were a child at some point. And the one that I remember that really stands out in my mind was I was 11 years old. It was 1970. It was late fall. And I was at a hockey practice at Kirkwood Rink. Everybody knows me knew it was going to be a hockey story. Sorry. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of one-dimensional in that. Um, and this is back when the Kirkwood Rink was outdoor. And it was, it was like the first week in November, somewhere right around there when the ice was just ready. And we're skating around the ice, getting ready for practice. And I'd like to say that I was like doing something phenomenal. I was, you know, like making some great move or, or you know, made some phenomenal play as I scored the goal. But I just fell down. I just fell over as I was skating around the rink. One just fell down. But I fell into the boards, and I cracked one of my ribs. Has anybody ever broken or cracked the rib? Let's see. How, all right. So you know you can't breathe, right? Um, so they take me to the emergency room, and, and they you know, say, you got a cracked rib. There's nothing you can do. you got to sit still for like two months. But the, the huge crisis in my life was my, uh, one of my uncles, my Uncle Harold and my cousin Joyce's, uh, here at Green Tree, her dad, was one of the original season ticket holders for the Blues. And that night, it was like a Sunday night, that night, the season ticket holders could go and could skate at the arena with the Blues. And my Uncle Harold was going to take me to skate with the Blues. And I missed that completely. Not to mention that I missed like, you know, a month and a half of being able to, to, to play hockey. So this was my first kind of unmitigated disaster of, of my life that it just, you know, you're 11 years old and you're getting ready to skate with the blues and you can't, I mean, your life's over. It's just, it's just come to a screeching halt. Now, that's a somewhat silly example, although at 11 years old, it was, uh, it was very serious to me. But I wanted to start with a little bit of levity because of where this passage is going this morning. We're going to look uh, at several verses in the life of Habakkuk, who's one of those kind of weird names at the end of the Old Testament. He's one of the minor prophets. Because every person in this room either has or will face a significant crisis in their life. Something that really is, you know, kind of shakes the foundations of your soul. That is an, an, it may be an emotional crisis. It may be um, you know, a physical report you get from your doctor about your health that maybe isn't good. It might be a, a situation at work, uh, in your business. It could be a, a broken family relationship. But most of us, really by our teenage years, know what it means to go through a crisis. And, and I promise you, if we could do like bubbles above everybody's head right now, you would, you would be thinking about something that's happened to you in your life that fits that mold. And one of the questions you ask when this kind of situation happens, uh, most likely, if you're like me and a lot of folks, is, okay, God, where are you? <laughs> Did you? I think maybe you didn't get this one quite right. Why has this happened? Where are you? Those may be some of the, of the questions that roll around in your mind at that particular time because we live in a world that has very real pain and very real struggles. And it's the, the, the question of crisis, the question of tragedy is not a question of if, it's a question of when. And the, the, the wrestling match that we kind of want to do this morning with this particular passage of scripture in light of that is, does my faith sustain me in hardship or does it abandon me? Does my faith sustain me during hardship, during the crisis, or does it abandon me? And this is one of the reasons why I love the book of Habakkuk. Not just because you say Habakkuk and people say, God bless you, and I need as many blessings as I can get. Some people over here got that. Um, But 
Habakkuk deals with the reality of crisis. The, the tragedy facing Habakkuk was very, very real. And he had a very real response. God, what on earth is, is going on here? How could this possibly work out? Habakkuk's story confronts the reality of this world. It doesn't skirt the issues. And so what we're going to read this morning uh, for just the opening scripture is the very end of Habakkuk. And you're going you're gonna to hear about three verses of a person that sounds like they kind of spiritually have it all together. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like somebody who has a negative reaction. It's because what I'm reading you is how it ends up. Then we're going to go back and look at Habakkuk in the first chapter and try to figure out what's happened because there's been a transformation that's taken place in his life as he faces a crisis of enormous proportion. So Habakkuk chapter 3, uh, just three verses, 17, 18, and 19. Hear the word of God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the prophet writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no flu- food, Excuse me. the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, living in, even in the Western world where we have many more comforts than a lot of the rest of the world does, we, uh, we have experienced, many of us, crisis of some kind in our lives, uh, some moment of, of hardship, some moment of adversity where we have struggled mightily to put the pieces together. Why has this happened? This doesn't seem fair. God, where are you? Those are questions with which we, have, if we're honest, we would say we have struggled with from time to time. So Father, I thank you for your conversation with Habakkuk because you Meet us right where we are. You don't ask us to get it all figured out before we come to sit at your feet. You invite us with all of our questions, with all of our confusion, even with our pain and our struggle. And so, Father, for those of us this morning who maybe have had that in the past, but right now it's a moment of peace, or perhaps right now we're right smack dab in the middle of it. Father, whether we're here this morning having been a disciple of Jesus for many years, or we're here this morning not really knowing what that means, or somewhere in between, Lord, I pray that your truth would speak into our lives. Father, my opinion about suffering, my opinion about how to, how to work through adversity is, is just one man's opinion, and it, and it has no weight. Father, it's only your eternal truth that can speak the, the much, much, much needed reality into our lives of your compassion and your grace. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would forgive my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to learn this morning. We pray that you would be our teacher, and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, let me give you the kind of a a summation of the conclusion to which Habakkuk comes in these verses that we just read. The conclusion in kind of the Tom Ricks sentence is going to be steadfastness in adversity, steadfastness of faith, the solid foundation of faith in adversity is all about proximity, not about prosperity. It's all about proximity, not prosperity. In other words, it's based on a relationship. It's not based on my circumstances. Now, if that's the case, what exactly does that mean and how do you get there? Because I I don't know anybody that really just hopes they fall apart in the middle of a crisis. (laughs) I've never met a person that says, you know, I really hope I have a bad week because I would just like to lay down on the floor and just be consumed with grief and hurt and pain. 
Every person, whether you're a person of faith or a person that is thinking about faith or has no faith, would like to find the deeper answers of life in order to be able to get through adversity because we all know it's going to come. This is not a perfect world. I'm not telling you something you don't know this morning, uh, except for maybe some of our littler ones that, that haven't lived quite as long. The vast majority of the people in this room have been through adversity. And if we're going to have a steadfastness, what does that look like? How do we get there? So I want to give you three observations from the book of Habakkuk. The first one is this. Steadfastness does not result from ignoring our circumstances. A steadfastness in the the middle of adversity does not come from ignoring our circumstances. Habakkuk's world was a mess. If you want to learn more about Habakkuk's world, you can read one of his contemporaries, the the prophet Jeremiah, and the nickname that Jeremiah has is the weeping prophet. (laughs) Jeremiah was sad all the time because his world was a disaster. The things that were going on in Habakkuk's day and in Jeremiah's day, tremendous amount of social injustice. The court system was completely compromised so that if you had money, you got the verdict. If you were poor, you were oppressed. There was no care for those who, the rights of those who were the underprivileged or the underclass. The, the religious uh, entity within the nation of Israel, the priesthood was also completely corrupted. The priesthood, those who, who should have been pointing out the, uh, the moral decay around them, the ones who should have been holding the rich accountable for their oppression of the poor were in the, in the back pocket of the rich as well. They were simply going along with what was happening. This was a time of moral bankruptcy. This was a time when the, when the, when the strongest survived and the weak perished. On top of all this, not only was the nation of Israel morally and, and, and spiritually corrupt, but they had an enemy called the Chaldeans who were a ruthless enemy, and they were knocking on the door, and they were about to come, and what would eventually happen was the nation of Israel would be wiped out. The northern tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel would be wiped out by the Chaldeans. So they've got an enemy at the gate, so to speak who is ruthless and antagonistic and wants to come and destroy Israel. Habakkuk has his hands full emotionally and spiritually. Habakkuk is supposed to be God's man at this time speaking into this crisis. And and here's the stability of Habakkuk. If you have your Bible, flip back to chapter 1. If not, you can follow along on the screen. Here's where we find Habakkuk in the midst of this turmoil. It sounds radically different than the end of chapter 3, verse 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. You see what Habakkuk sees as his biggest problem? Do you see that the unrest in his soul is not just looking at the social ills of his day, but Habakkuk has also wrongly, but at this point, come to the conclusion that he's dealing with a God of indifference, that he is dealing with a God who either is, is too blind to the situation and has his head in the sand and doesn't see what's happening or doesn't care or is impotent and cannot bring about whatever change needs to be made in order to correct the problems that are obvious to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is not only worried about the moral corruption of his day, but he sees that his bigger problem is that there is a God who is not listening to his cry for mercy. 
And so Habakkuk would argue that he is not ignoring his circumstances. And Habakkuk sees the problem and he goes to God. And he basically fundamentally says to God, God, where are you? Why aren't you fixing this problem? And what's beautiful about the book of Habakkuk is that God lets Habakkuk be Habakkuk. God does not chastise Habakkuk for asking the question. God does not come to Habakkuk and say, as soon as you change your attitude and you understand who's in charge here, then I'll come and then I'll answer your questions. Asking the question, being honest about the emotional turmoil or the spiritual turmoil in your life is not in and of it a sin. Asking the question with honesty, seeking to know exactly, God, what are you doing and what am I missing here is something that ought to be a practice of each one of our lives. Because if it's not, we're simply being disingenuous. To to feel one way and to act a different way, what's the word we put on that? What do we call that? Hypocrisy, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one thing, I'm going to pretend one way but, or, or think one way, but I'm going to do something else or present myself as another way. That's hypocrisy, and God sees right through that. God invites you to bring your questions, even though they may be like Habakkuk's, Lord, where are you? He is a God who welcomes that kind of questioning. I remember growing up in my generation of guys I talked to, um, you know, their experience with their dad was very similar. And, and, and I, I love my dad, a great dad. But those guys of that generation, you know, if dad put down a rule, there wasn't a whole lot of conversation about it, right? Like if dad said curfew is 1130, I didn't go and say, now, now, father, I've made some notes here and I'd like to discuss this because I think there's some fallacy in your thinking and how you've come up with this time. And I, I'm sure you'll come around to my way of thinking and, and we'll get it. No, if in my day and age, when dad said 1130 and you said, why dad said what? Because I told you so, right? It's, it's just simple as that, right? The God of heaven does not say, because I told you so. Now, I'm not trying to pick on my dad or anybody else. I've heard those words come out of my own mouth towards my own children, okay? So I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I'm trying to actually just make the other point about God and that he welcomes the question. God understands our pain better than we understand it ourselves. God understands our confusion better than we understand. And and it would be disingenuous for disciples of Jesus or for anyone for that matter to not understand that God welcomes the question. He understands that we are limited in our understanding. He understands that we can't see the same as, as he can see. And so he welcomes hurting people. He welcomes the painful questions in order to engage in the conversation. So there's two applications for this. So I move on to my second observation. The first is be honest with God. If you go and you read the Psalms, there's dozens of questions in the Psalms. God, where are you? What are you doing? Help me. I'm in distress. I can't find you anywhere. Those are welcomed by God. Bring your questions. Bring your confusion. Talk to another Christian friend about him and bring him to God that way. Ask somebody to pray for you. Go into his God's word and study to see what he says about your particular topic. If you don't know how to do that, call me. We'll do it together. Bring the questions. But the second part of the application is to those of us who would provide an answer. Friends, we must be very, very careful not to put burdens upon people that are man-made and not from the Lord. In other words, we, when, when someone approaches us and says, man, I, just, I, I don't even know if I believe God exists anymore. This is so hard. Our response is not, well, there's something wrong with your faith. <laughs> a good Christian would know not to think that way. That's putting a burden upon someone that God never intended. And as we minister to one another, as we care for one another, we need to create an environment where it, we are free to ask the hard questions. 
Because a steadfastness of faith will never come from ignoring our circumstances. Secondly, a steadfastness of faith comes from a teachable spirit. So Habakkuk gets in this conversation with God, and he tosses out this question, and the Lord gives him an answer, and the Lord actually says, Habakkuk, you know, you may not want to hear this, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's a very short summation of, of chapter 1. And Habakkuk comes back and says, Lord, are you kidding me? I think maybe, you know, talking to my good ear, I think I heard you wrong. Did you say you're sending the Chaldeans? They're worse than us. How can you punish an evil person with a more evil person? And so uh, Habakkuk is, is in this wrestling match and trying to figure all this out. And here's what he says in the first verse of chapter 2. I will make my stand at my watch post. In other words, I'm going to be laser focused on this. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to listen. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to be like the guy who's, who's guarding the vault. I'm going I'm to be right on top of this situation. And I will station myself on the tower. And I will look out to see what he, he being God, what he will say to me. And then what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, Habakkuk says, I'm going to be involved in the conversation. I still don't get it. Lord, I don't under, I, thank you for answering me, but I still need more help. I'm not quite there. But in that confusion and in his lack of understanding, Habakkuk demonstrates a teachable spirit. Habakkuk is confused, but he does not disengage. He doesn't throw his hands up and say, well, that's it. I, I'm, I give up. God, there must be something wrong with you. He says, I'm going to stay right here and continue to, to wrestle with this. Habakkuk is bewildered, but he does not assume he can see from God's perspective. Notice that Habakkuk not only wants to hear what the Lord has to say, but then he says, then I'm going to have to think about my response. That's a good student. That's someone who really wants to genuinely engage in the question. Habakkuk is flummoxed. I just wanted to use that word. Don't you love flummoxed? What a great word. Habakkuk is flummoxed. But he is not impatient. I will stay here. I will, be, I will be in the watchtower. I will keep looking and listening. Habakkuk is perplexed, but he knows he must listen to learn. He knows that if there is an answer, it will only come from God. And friends, we're really good at making up our own answers. We're really good at making decisions that we should never make based on the limited knowledge and information and understanding we have. And, and Habakkuk is not the hero of the story. God is. But I pray that, that when I am in those moments of crisis, that I will have a teachable spirit. I pray that actually every day of my life, I will have a teachable spirit that says, Lord, I've got to study more. I've got to learn more. I've got to pray more. I've got to get around my Christian friends more because I'm still not quite there. And Habakkuk actually, in the end of chapter uh, 2, as God's given this long discourse of, of his answer, this, the summation statement in chapter 2 is this, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Now, that's not Habakkuk saying, you know, you don't have the right to ask the question. Habakkuk says, when you, when you get to God and you get to the conversation, you need to be quiet and listen because he is with his people. This is what a, a modern uh, commentator wrote on this particular passage. God listened to Habakkuk and addressed the prophet's burning concern in specific detail. He still does so today. But we need, like Habakkuk, to be open to God's lateral thinking. His perception and perspective are much wider than ours. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees the whole picture. His purpose and activity are based on this knowledge and understanding. Our judgments are radically affected by time, space, and mortality. God stands outside of all three. Yet in his compassion and concern, he takes our prayers 
seriously. It's at a place where, where we come and we ask the question and then we stop. And we listen and we allow God to share his truth with us. Steadfastness and adversity will come from a teachable spirit that says, Lord, I, I don't get it. Teach me. Help me understand I had a reoccurring nightmare in seminary, and I, this is probably a nightmare that everybody's had. It maybe not was seminary for you. Maybe it was a presentation at work or, or in college or something like that, but I would have this reoccurring nightmare that I was sitting in a class that I knew I should have been in all semester long, right? And, and the professors, I see the face, and I, I've, I've had a bunch of classes with them, and I was supposed to be here all semester, and I wasn't. I haven't read one book. I haven't been to one lecture, and he's handing out the final exam. <laughs> you ever had that one? And it is a cold sweat. Scott Holly, that's what you do to students. They have these images, and, and I know that makes you feel good, actually. You can, you can, you can bring that kind of, of pain to our lives. There's they're just, oh, my goodness, I'm not ready. Oh, my goodness, I, I'm supposed to be prepared, but I've missed all the classes. What will I do? Friends, a, a spiritual crisis, a physical crisis, a financial crisis, an emotional crisis is a test. The question is not where the test is going to come. The question is whether we've actually been in class all semester. The question is whether we have uh, given the Lord the opportunity to answer our questions. Sometimes I'll ask a question and Cindy will start to answer it and I'll interrupt her. And what does she say? Why are you asking me if you've already made up your mind, right? I think sometimes the Lord says, Tom, why are you asking if you've already made up your mind? Am I willing to be still, to be silent and let God speak to me? Because you see, friends, Asking an honest question and being presumptuous are two very different things. And presumption is a sin. That I would say to God, I know more than you. I understand what you don't understand is the sin of rebellion. But to ask a genuine question in the midst of pain and say, Lord, I don't get it. I want to understand is something altogether different. It should be the practice of every believer. Lord, help me know you. Help me to understand more because that leads to our learning and knowing the Lord better. The other ignores his lordship and his truth. The first prepares us for the storm. The second, uh, the second leaves us floundering in the midst of the waves. Steadfastness does not result in ignoring our circumstances. It comes from a teachable spirit. And my third observation in this text is a steadfastness is all about proximity, not prosperity. God engages with his people in their hurt and confusion. If you were to go home this afternoon and read the rest of Habakkuk, you would find out an interesting thing that hasn't come out in this sermon because I've been talking a lot about Habakkuk's questions. The facts are Habakkuk's questions take up about this much of the book of Habakkuk and the rest of it is God's answers. God spends time unpacking this with Habakkuk. He spends time helping Habakkuk understand how to have his faith grow, not because the circumstances change, but because his God is very real and he loves him and will not abandon him. God engages with us in our hurt and confusion. The second observation under this is simply that Habakkuk's circumstances never change. When we get to the end of chapter 3, which we're going to come back to now, and you see what we read at the beginning, we see the conclusion of the matter. Habakkuk is not in the same place. He's not saying, Lord, where are you? Why will I cry for you know, help and you won't hear? Why is the law paralyzed? He's asking none of those questions anymore. He's come to his conclusion. But his circumstances have not changed. The moral decay in the nation of Israel is still running amok. 
The Chaldeans are still knocking on the door. They're going to come and they're going to wipe out the government of the nation of Israel. It will never recover from that. Habakkuk is still in a circumstantial mess. What has changed? Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit on the vines, the, uh, no fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the field yield no foods, the flocks be cut off for the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. That's, a, that's a, an unbelievable mess. And beyond that, he goes on to say, and when God makes me tread in my high places, and when we think of high places, we think of like, you know, spiritual high, like you went to a retreat. Uh, and, and you heard a great teacher, and you did some great worship, and you come back, and you're like, man, I'm on a spiritual line. I went to the mountaintop, right? And we, we look at this verse, and we see it in, a, in that positive light, and we've misinterpreted that verse. That's not at all what Habakkuk is saying. Habakkuk is saying that God is going to take me to the place of greatest risk. God is going to take me to a place where if I make one misstep, I am going to be destroyed. He's not talking about a retreat. He's talking about being in a place of serious, serious emotional, spiritual, and physical danger. And he says, God makes me tread on those high places. That's where God leads me. But he's come to a very different conclusion. What does he go on to say? He says this, even yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. His joy is in the God of his salvation. His joy is in his Savior, the one who is going to care not just for his temporal world, but for his eternal well-being. God, not my own wisdom, not my own ability, is my strength. What happened? How did Habakkuk get from there to here? The simple answer is he sat down at the feet of God. And it was about his proximity to his Lord. And you and I rush about, I shouldn't say you, I rush about, And I get a little bit of time in the Word, and I get a little bit of time in prayer, and then I go and I deal with some of these earth-shattering situations, and I wonder why I feel a bit lost. I feel a bit confused. And and, and I don't avail myself to, to people to come and pray for me. And I don't stop to say, wait a minute, I've studied God's Word. What does it say about this situation that I'm dealing with in my family? Oh my goodness, there's, a, there's an incredible amount of information, all of which points me to the wisdom and the grace and the power and the mercy of God. And as I draw close to him, as I listen to him, as I submit my will to his, I begin to see that I'm actually in a pretty safe place. I begin to see that I can actually have joy, not happiness, because my circumstances might not change, not kind of a glib, oh, I guess it'll be okay, but, a, but an inner peace and an inner joy, even in the valley, the shadow of death, even in the dark place, because he has not abandoned me. And if the Bible teaches us one thing about God, it teaches us just that. He who did not spare his own son, how much more will he give us all things in Christ? The feeling of security for the believer is not in their circumstances. Never has been, never will be. It's in their proximity to their father. When uh, our youngest son, Jordan's a junior at Alabama this year, his freshman year in May, uh, that terrible uh, tornado hit Tuscaloosa uh, about two weeks before that kind of a very similar one hit um, Joplin. We're a lot more familiar with the Joplin one, but I had to run down and pick him up um, and brought him home. And we had been home, I don't know, probably about a week. And parents will get this. You know how you haven't opened your eyes and you're not quite awake, but you know there's somebody else in your bedroom, you know, and it's one of your children. You know, you, you, you can sense them. You know they're there. It's something that God's ingrained in you. Well, it was about 5.30 in the morning and I wake up, but my eyes aren't open. And I know there's something really, really big in my bedroom. 
and Jordan's about six foot four, he weighs about 220, and he's standing next to my bed, and he's looking down at me. And, I, you know, I was glad I kind of remembered who he was. He'd been gone all semester, and I'm like, hey, bud, what's going on? And I look in his eyes, and there's kind of this fear in his eyes. He goes, you hear that? The, the tornado siren's going off. And he had been about three blocks away from where the tornado hit in Tuscaloosa, and it had scared him to death. And what he was saying was, Dad, I need to feel safe. You know, I know I'm 19 years old. I know I'm a lot bigger than you. And you know, I need to feel safe. And I, and I feel safe when I'm around you. Now, I couldn't do anything about the tornado. You know, I'm limited. And I'm not, I'm not comparing me to the God of the Bible. But I said, okay, but let's, let's go downstairs. You turn on the TV. I'll get on the computer. Let's find out where the, you know, where the cells are and see if we need to go in the basement. Cindy rolls over. Like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, the tornado sirens are going. She goes, okay. She rolls over, goes back to sleep. Um, she had a lot of confidence in me, too. Um, but he just, needed, he just needed that emotional protection. He needed to be near his dad. And friends, I think so often, I like turn and run the other way, or I sit in judgment. I'm like, well, God, clearly you don't love me as much as you should. Instead, the application is being willing to draw near, being willing to draw near close to God, not just during the crisis, but before it ever hits <laughs> and after That one's gone and before the next one comes. Am I continually, purposely drawing near to my God? Am I studying his word with an intensity to answer the practical questions of my life and to be prepared to help others with their very real, very practical questions? Am I learning from his people? Am I learning from time and prayer? Am I being prepared for a steadfastness and adversity that places me under his care? My prayer for me, my prayer for you, for all of us. And I, Green Tree, I think, is a great place for this. We take seriously growing disciples. If you feel like you're adrift at sea and you don't know where God is and you have a lot of questions, I, I can honestly say you've come to the right place. Not because we're really smart, and, but, but because we want to care for you well in that circumstance. We will help you walk through those moments. And if you're here this morning, somehow you feel like we failed you, please tell us so that we can engage with you again and seek to help you as we help one another draw close to our Lord and our God. Because remember the prophet's conclusion. Remember where he got to, not because the circumstances had changed, but because he had drawn near to his God. We go to that next screen, please. Can we go to that? There you go. Steadfastness in adversity. It's all about proximity, not prosperity. How close am I to God? Let's pray together. Father, there's a lot bigger issues than a a cracked rib of an 11-year-old, although that seemed pretty big at the time. But Father, as we go through life, we know the challenges in marriage and in work. We know the challenges of, of, of finances and health. Lord, this is a broken world. And I thank you that that you, as the one who created it perfectly, have not given up on those of us who messed it up. But you are redeeming it. You're putting it back together. And Father, when we get to those moments where what we really need is a steadfastness of faith in you, I pray, Lord, that we will be prepared. I pray that this would be a congregation that where we, we encourage one another in the word of God. Lord, you, you've given us so much about who you are. If we would just take the time to, to ask the questions in the context of Scripture. And Lord, some of, maybe we don't know how to do that. We could find somebody who could help us. Father, I pray that more and more you would make Green Tree a place where where steadfastness of faith is, is developed every day, not just waiting until the moment when the, when the storm hits. But Father, I also thank you that your character is a character of redemption. You don't resent us coming with questions. 
you create within us a teachable spirit and you say, come here, come sit with me. I can show you the answers. You will be safe in my arms. I know your circumstances are scary, but I sent my son to die for you, to purchase your life. I'll see you safely home. So, Father, for those of us who perhaps are giving care to others now, uh, make us faithful in that and and, and bringing people to Jesus, not to our own man-made solutions. And, Father, for those who are struggling, I pray that you would bring your word into their lives, either through a friend, through a a staff member here, through a family member, Lord, that, that we would care for one another well, that we would draw one another into close proximity to our Lord and Savior, that we may experience his care and his lordship his direction in our lives that will see us through the storm until the day we see him face to face. We pray in his name. Amen.